everyone. We're taking a little break in our series, the subject of giving. Um, there is a story told of two men who were um, discussing giving, and they were comparing notes. And um, one of them said, of course, I, I give 10% of all my income. And the other chap said, really? Well, he said, um, I give God everything. He said, what do you mean you give God everything? How does that work? He said, well, I get paid weekly. I get paid in cash when I open the, my, my, um, uh, ink, my, what did I get? My envelope, whatever it is you get. <laughs> and he said, I, 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 I put all the money in my hand like that, he said. And I, and I do that, he said, and I toss it in the air. And he said, what stays up is his and what comes down is mine. <laughs> Um, giving is one of those words that the church has uh, adopted to mean something specific, uh, as opposed to giving presents or giving a lift. Uh, coincidentally, we are going to start by reading a familiar story from Luke's Gospel, but um, further on from where we are in our series. So we're in Luke 19, verses 1 to 10, and it's the familiar story of, of Zacchaeus. He, that's Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. We'll refer to this story a, a bit later. I think it's true to say that the concept of giving money to the church is fairly embedded not only in the Christian mind but in the minds of the, the general public. Certainly in times past and maybe in some churches today, taking up an offering or collection was and is an essential part of the worship service. Uh, stewards collected the bags or plates and took them to the front of the building for the minister to pray over them, um, the people felt that they were giving to God, albeit through the ministry and work of the church. It was an act of worship. Now, modern methods of giving, such as a bank standing order, have largely replaced the visual element uh, of giving to God. And the danger is that what ha happens now automatically, say once a month, uh, is just a debit on a bank statement, and it's harder to make it an act of worship. Uh, this is perhaps why uh, some who had switched to giving by standing order also put a small amount in the bag or in the plate 
uh, to retain an element of personal worship. Um, we at Beacon here stopped uh, taking up our offering during the Sunday meeting because so few people um, used that method. However, as you know, there's a box by the door for those who prefer to give cash or a check. Christian giving to God is something of a reflection of the Old Testament principle of the tithe, which means 10%, and it was of income and produce, and was given to the priestly family of Levites who served the people. Because unlike the other tribes of Israel, they had no inheritance in the land, and this was their provision, a practice that became enshrined in the law. Therefore, it was an obligation. I don't know if you remember, but earlier in our study in Luke's Gospel, we saw Jesus criticizing the scribes and Pharisees for tithing garden herbs, but neglecting justice and love of God. In other words, they were, had satisfied themselves in, a, in obeying a law down to nitpicking detail and yet neglected weightier matters. Obeying the law in this fashion closed their minds to a genuine response to God, to genuine worship. And this can be true to us if we impose a limit on our giving, be it arbitrary or what we think is a requirement. There are churches today that believe that the Old Testament principle of tithing, that is giving 10% of income, should be continued for Christians. And some even make it a condition of church membership. R.T. Kendall, an American preacher who spent many years uh, as the minister of Westminster Chapel, is a strong advocate of tithing for Christians. Uh, this church, however, whilst we see a tithe, say 10%, as a useful benchmark, we do not see it as taught in the New Testament, but rather that generosity should be the measure and hallmark of our giving. Some years ago, I produced a short discussion paper uh, entitled, Is Tithing Taught in the New Testament? Um, if you'd like a copy, it's only a couple of pages, then please see me afterwards. Why generosity rather than a prescribed amount? Our giving to God should always be a response to his generosity towards us. God has made the first move. He has taken the initiative. While we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. When we were dead in our sins, he raised us to life. He forgave us our trespasses. He adopted us as his children and lavished on us the riches of his grace. And this is not just grace that, that saved us, but grace that continues, expressed in his love and mercy available to us as we stumble and mess up through this Christian life. As Bob reminded us a couple of weeks ago from Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more, or grace abounded all the more. God is so generous with his grace. And this tells us that for us who are in Christ, those who are his own, his grace is limitless. We must not think of grace only in terms of salvation, but it is our permanent state. Earlier on in Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in God's grace. No matter what we do, we cannot move out from under his grace. The word grace appears far more in the New Testament than the word generosity but they are in some measure interchangeable. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that for us, God's throne is no longer a throne of judgment and condemnation, but one of grace. Grace, as we know, is undeserved favour, which can be seen as generosity. If God's grace towards us expressed through his generosity is ongoing, then our response should be ongoing. In other words, when we're challenged about giving, our response should not be out of duty or conformity to a law, but in response to his outrageous generosity. We are sons and daughters of a generous father, and we should display the family likeness. As we think about Christian giving, let's take a step back even further because we are not just to be generous as a reflection of our Father, but in recognition that our relationship to money and possessions has changed since we were saved. And the familiar story of Zacchaeus uh, illustrates this. Luke tells us that he was a chief tax collector, uh, possibly a head of a local taxation department, and he was rich. He and his fellow tax collectors would have been despised by the people on two counts. One, that he was working for the Romans and was party to the burdens that were being laid on the people. And two, that it was easy for him to charge the people more than that was required by his masters. And so he was becoming rich at their expense and he was despised and he was put in that category of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus would have been aware of all this and yet invited himself to stay at his house. It was not a mild request, but a strong expression. I must stay at your house today. It was part of his divine mission to seek and to save the lost. We see from the opening statement that he had not planned to stay in Jericho. He was just passing through but he is drawn to Zacchaeus as he is drawn to all sinners. We're not told all that happened in the encounter, but at some point Zacchaeus stood up and completely out of character says, "Um, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. He was overflowing with expressions of generosity. And this was not just a matter of settling debts. That would have been good, but, or meeting the law's minimal requirements, but of outrageous generosity. An encounter with Jesus touched the very core of his being, and immediately his relationship to money changed. He had been saved, brought back into the fold. Now a true son of Abraham. Not because he was a Jew, 
um, a descendant of Abraham because he had the faith of Abraham. Faith that he could trust God and let go of his money. If we know that we're saved, it is because at some time in our life we had an encounter with Jesus. I'm sure it's different for each, other, each one of us, but that is the essence of it. We, uh, we met with Jesus. We welcomed him into our life and we were born again by the Spirit of God and we learned that we were a new creation. The old had passed away and the new had come. We are kingdom people. We no longer view things from a worldly point of view. And this especially applies to money and possessions because they dominate the world and people's aspirations. But of course, there are, these things are not evil in themselves. Indeed, God gives us many things to enjoy. But they can be deceitful, as Jesus said in the parable of the sower. Promising much, yet delivering little, and can lead to all sorts of sins, such as greed and covetousness. Jesus, when teaching about the kingdom of God, frequently used money and our need for a changed relationship to it and with a new priority of seeking first his kingdom. What may seem impossible in the midst of all the pressures of our materialistic society, where money makes the world go round, it is possible for us who are his because we have met Jesus, because we have a new heart, because we have seen something of the glory of his kingdom, because we believe that storing up treasure in heaven is infinitely better than storing up treasure on earth, and because we believe that Jesus can and will deliver on all his promises to those who trust him. Uh, whilst I'm suggesting, um, uh, uh, what I'm suggesting is that when we come to consider what we should give God, we should not start with figures and percentages, but rather a heart of generosity, remembering again God's generosity to us. Also, we should acknowledge that all we have received from whatever source is from God, and it's on loan to us as his stewards. Even when we've decided in our hearts what to give God, which is what Paul said we should do, what remains is still on loan. It's ultimately his because he is Lord. This is why there can be a problem in applying a set amount like a tithe. Because the danger is we think that we've met our obligation to God uh, and um, when we give that amount. Of course, God wants us to enjoy the fruits of our labours and spend our money in ways that bring joy and fulfilment to us and our families and even make some sensible provision for our future needs. But it's still his, and he may ask us to give more. If I'm suggesting that we start from a generous heart, what are the principles that can help us put this into practice? Here are a few pointers from the New Testament. Our gift should be regular and in proportion to what we have received. Most of us receive money on a regular basis, don't we? So our giving should follow this. Uh, the next reading is 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, 
so that there will be no collecting when I come. Secondly, as we have already commented, it should be from the heart. So 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Therefore, giving should be a joy. Yes, good. A loving response to God. And there is blessing for the giver. Paul goes on in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The question may arise, should what I decide to give to God uh, be just for the church, and in particular the local church, or include other Christian work, or indeed other good causes? Now I can't be prescriptive here, it's not for me to tell you where precisely you put your money. But I believe there is an emphasis in the New Testament on supporting the local church along with apostolic advance. That is planting churches where the gospel has not reached. This is because however good and worthy other causes are, it is the church. Uh, it is the church that is God's primary instrument evangelizing the world and for discipling and nurturing new believers. No other organization has been charged with the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all, people, all nations. This is why we exist. This is why we're here this morning. And the mission of God in the world should not be impoverished because we are spreading our giving too thinly. Therefore, I believe that this should be reflected in our giving. I do, however, realize there are many wonderful Christian agencies like Tear Fund that bring relief to people and communities around the world with a gospel emphasis and are indeed worthy of our financial support. So the choices can be very challenging. Um, on the day of Pentecost, do you remember the, the birth of the church when people gathered from all over the empire to come to this uh, Jewish festival of Pentecost and Peter preached to the people and thousands were saved. Thousands were saved and were joined to God's church. And there was a surge of giving from the people that hardly knew one another. I'm not aware that Peter in his sermon ever talked about people giving to one another or giving into the cause. But this benefited this new community. We read in Acts 4, 32 to 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that anything, any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice it was the apostles' responsibility to collect the gifts and distribute them and also later it was the apostles who made sure that churches beyond the local 
um, were um, given support, um, like the Christians in Jerusalem who were suffering. Also, it was recognized that those who labored in preaching and teaching should be financially supported by the church. Now, of course, life and church life in particular is more complicated today than it was when the church was born. And in addition to paying church staff, there are a host of other expenses that are unavoidable in maintaining a church and accommodating its meetings. So we have to accept that some of our money, quite legitimately, goes to these things. Therefore, it's important that we see the bigger picture and how important the church is to God. We are being prepared for the most momentous event in history, in the history of the world, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, when empires and kingdoms will be no more. And the church will be centre stage, prepared as a bride for her husband, Jesus. But right now, we have the privilege of making Jesus and his salvation known through that same church. Now, we're a relatively small local church, um, and, um, and yet, um, together with others in our church family that we call Relational Mission, we're involved in church planting in this country and abroad. And no matter what financial challenges we face in maintaining Beacon Church right here, we're also an active part of this enterprise. Let's summarize where we've got to so far. Firstly, because of God's outrageous generosity to us, expressed in the gift of his Son and all that we know that goes with that, the New Testament principle of thanksgiving and generosity supersedes the limitations of imposed percentages such as a tithe. Secondly, giving is to be from the heart and strictly between you and God. If we're using 10% as a benchmark, then for some people that will be too much and for others that will be too little. Thirdly, although giving to many worthy causes could be part of our giving to God, and indeed many organisations are seen as partnering with the church in fulfilling its mission, such as CAP, the local church and apostolic advance should take priority if we are to fulfil the Great Commission. Now I can't finish this message without acknowledging the huge financial pressures facing our nation and indeed many nations in the world and no doubt many of you. And it might seem an inappropriate time to be talking about giving when many families are struggling to make ends meet, even with the government's recent rescue package. I've already quoted from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, and how Paul was encouraging them to contribute to the relief of the Christians in Jerusalem. And to do this, he quotes the example of the Macedonian churches who had already given, not out of prosperity, but surprisingly out of poverty. This is because there is a supernatural grace of giving. Yeah, there is a supernatural grace of giving. Here's what he says at the beginning of uh, chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 1 to 5. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, and I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Notice Paul says that grace was given the Macedonian churches. Grace is the intention of God's heart towards his people and can be expressed, say, in love and mercy, which is what we may normally think of, but also in enabling. In enabling, so these Christians were able to supernaturally give beyond what might normally be expected. Just notice the enthusiasm and the joy of giving in the midst of their affliction, which might have been persecution, of course. Have you thought of giving as a supernatural ministry? Um, Paul says in his um, list of spiritual gifts in Romans chapter 12, he says, contributing in generosity is a spiritual gift. Um, Paul enlarges on this in chapter 9 and verses uh, 6 to 15. Uh, the point is this, whoever sows...